A warm welcome back to Ripples, the podcast about the unintended consequences of events or big decisions. I'm your host, Claire English. Some relaxation on the guidelines, but on and on it goes. We continue to see how the COVID pandemic pans out. Each week we hear how it's affecting those who are already struggling with serious illness. And this time I'm sharing a cancer patient's inside story of surgery during lockdown. That's going to tee up the next edition of Ripples, where we get some perspective on the challenges of providing those services from the president of the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh. By now, we're all acutely aware that these are really worrying times for many cancer patients who are really anxious about their condition, their prognosis. Then along comes a whole heap of confusion about where they're actually going to go and access treatment, whether they're actually going to get treatment, trials, and whether they'll have important, potentially life-saving operations. It's not clear which parts of the UK or Scotland specifically are faring best when it comes to carrying on with surgery lists. But what we do know for sure is that some cancer surgery has been going on in Edinburgh. Alison Tate can testify to that. She had to have an urgent mastectomy amidst the lockdown, a strange and dislocating experience. And yet, Alison feels she was one of the lucky ones. She lived in a city where cancer surgery was largely continuing. Well, there's sure to be quite a debate about the apparent postcode lottery ripple effects of this pandemic. Again, more on that next time on Ripples. For now, we concentrate on Alison's story, and it's a real switchback ride of ups and downs. Probably best if I put the entire conversation out on my Ripples Facebook page. Click on the link for that because there's some added jeopardy. After her op, Alison finds herself back in the same hospital, but this time in the red zone, the COVID side. Okay, now let's take a breath, start at the very beginning and the origins of Alison's health troubles. Okay, so in 2016, I was diagnosed with, um, it's called de novo. So that is when uh, you don't have a primary cancer diagnosis, you go straight to secondary. Um, So I'd I'd noticed a lump in my right breast. Um, When I was exercising, it was painful. And uh, sort of being the age that I was, you kind of wonder if these are just perimenopausal symptoms. And uh, I'm sure lots of women that you, that you know about get lumpy breasts as they get older around about that time of the month. So um, I kind of sort of dismissed it and just sort of did some low impact stuff. And obviously through my cycle, picked up my fitness again, but it was still just niggling away and not quite right. So I went to my GP and um, I saw locum. And he examined me and he didn't think I had anything to be worried about, but he said I should uh, make an appointment at a different time in my cycle. So uh, I did that. And uh, when I went back and I saw kind of my, my general female doctor, um, when she got the sort of measuring stick out um, and was laying that alongside my breast and the look of concern on her face, I was kind of like, this this is something to worry about. And uh, she said that she was recommending an emergency referral to the breast clinic. So... That happened quite quickly and um, my trip to the breast clinic, so again, I'm not sure if this happens in all sort of NHS areas, but um, certainly in there on the Monday morning, you are examined, you go for a mammogram, you go for an ultrasound and by lunchtime, you you know whether or not you have breast cancer. Um, So through that afternoon, if you are able to stay, they do um, a set of biopsies um, on what they've picked up on the ultrasound. And from that, they're able to determine, I guess, your your breast cancer type. 
And um, so that was kind of the, the day one for me. And I was invited to go back three days later just for body scans and that kind of thing. And uh, the first doctor I saw was doing an ultrasound of my liver. And they're clicking away and have only ever been in hospital to have a baby before. I know when they're clicking an ultrasound, they're, they're measuring and taking pictures of something. So uh, that for me was kind of sort of confirming that there was something not quite right in my liver. And when I asked him the question at the end, of course, he said to me, well, we don't know what it is yet, but whatever it is that's there, we can treat it. And I think I left hospital that day with on, and on reflection, just thinking, he said, treat, not cure. Um, and I think it takes a long time for that kind of diagnosis to really sink in and hit home. There then followed nine gruelling rounds of chemo. Very hard to tolerate, but it seemed to pay off. By 2017, Alison was back at work and her scans were looking good. But that was about to change. By February this year, she began to suspect that all was not well with one of her breasts. She'd spotted a worrying sign. It was a very, very slight sort of dimpling. And if I looked certain ways, I couldn't see it. And if I looked certain ways, I could. And I was like saying to my daughter, can you see? Am I seeing things? Is this? Um, and that was when I called my breast care nurse to say, I'm concerned. I'm noticing something. I think I should come in. Um, and the quickest appointment they could get me was in four weeks' time. Um, but I could phone the breast clinic, see if I could get a cancellation a bit quicker. So that was a little bit worrying for me. And I thought, you know, as a, as a patient with secondary, um, you know, pretty much the writing's on the wall. So it's, you know, that I don't think there was very much doubt here in terms of what I was seeing. So I was, I was a little bit concerned. And, you know, speaking to some of the other ladies, they were like, oh, you know, that's not good enough. And you need to keep phoning and you need to keep on at them. And um, I was kind of like, yeah, 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 it'll be fine, fine. And uh, then when I noticed kind of a change in how my breast felt, um, that was when I phoned. And um, I was very fortunate that I called them on a Thursday and she said, we've got cancellation on Monday. Can you come in for that? And I was of course I can. Wow. So, uh, and, you know, e even then, seeing the consultant at that point, he um, he examined me. He His words were, I don't think you've got anything to worry about. Um, but let's do a mammogram. He says, because you can't just tell by examining. And the mammogram led to the ultrasound, which then led to, again, the clicking. Mm. <laughs> the clicking of the ultrasound. So, you know, again, they're seeing something. So I was kind of pretty prepared when I went to see him that, you know, there was going to be some kind of action needing taken on the back of it. So uh, he straight away suggested and stepped me. So that felt like the right thing to do. Um, but we wanted to make sure, you know, do scans again and make sure... Pardon me, the disease wasn't progressing elsewhere. So those scans came back clear. Um, I used the Murrayfield to try and get seen quicker with my scan because I was really um, anxious at that point to get things moving. I wanted to know the, the, the bigger picture really quickly so that you know, you know we kind of knew what the plan was going to be. Um, it's really important when you have a disease like this or progression or when anything kind of doesn't go your way that there is a good plan in place as quickly as possible because that gives you something to kind of like hold up and focus on. So, um, so yeah, my scan came back clear. So again, stepped to me, absolutely the right thing to do. And uh, <clears throat> he said he would get me, and if not the following week, the week after or the week after that. So of course, at this point, we're must have been end of March time. 
So we're in sort of lockdown at this point. COVID's on the horizon now and everyone's beginning to think, oh, things are not going to be normal. Yeah, and and it was kind of like, well, how will this work with with lockdown? And and I think I was I was deeply concerned about, you know, we, uh, my thoughts were, is the hospital going to be overrun with COVID? Is my operation actually going to happen? And I was also concerned about what if the surgeon gets COVID? He's here every day, um, so that was such a worry. And uh, when he said he'd call to confirm, when I hadn't heard in you know for a week, I kind of phoned and I was like happening here and uh, she said we've well, been penciled in so so that was good but even at that point I was still you know uh what's the phrase it's not over till the fat lady sings I thought until I'm actually in there and they're prepping me for surgery and he appears at the bottom of my bed saying come on let's go I was just like yeah I don't, I don't know what's going on here so because you will have known very, that you, you will have known that probably in other parts of the country this kind of surgery wasn't happening um, I kind of heard through social media that some things weren't happening. Um, but I I think always with social media, you, you think, well, I don't know, how does my situation compare with somebody else's? Is, and, and it probably made me think, is, is this just more life-threatening for me um, in terms of where I am? But at the same time, because I've got secondary, I'm kind of like, well, so what? Does does it really matter? Um yeah, so I, I, it did dawn on me that I was probably luckier than most that it actually went ahead and that it was still going on because I was hearing about cancer centres being closed. It was more around people not getting treatment I was hearing um, than surgery. And I could just assume that perhaps their surgery wasn't as urgent. And I was also hearing that, you know, people were given um like chemo and tablet form to take rather than surgery because the risk of infection was so high. So putting all those things together, it probably just made me appreciate A, how ill I was and B, how much threat my life was actually under at that point. So what so happened next? Very, you basically, you but, were thinking, come on, it's penciled in, but as you say, it ain't over yet. Let's see if we get there. No, well, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, really concerned. And um, I was quite surprised, actually, when I turned up on the day that there were other ladies also scheduled for uh, surgery that day. So somebody in for exactly the same procedure as I was in for. Um, so I, when I got in there, it, it did have a feel of a little bit of just business as usual in terms of um, in terms of surgery for cancer patients, well, breast cancer patients. Alison was preparing for a mastectomy, a daunting prospect, but this was also against the backdrop of the COVID pandemic, special arrangements at hospitals to avoid any threat of COVID infection for those attending. Alison was taken to hospital by her daughter, but once she arrived there, she was more or less abandoned on the threshold because of those stringent infection control measures. Nobody could accompany a patient inside. Now, can you just imagine that for a moment? You're a young girl, watching your mother go inside for life-changing, urgent surgery. You can't be there to give any reassurance or to make sure she was even settled prior to the op. And Alison, well, she truly is on her own now. No, it was just, it was just very, uh, it's very, it's very isolating. It's, you know, having cancer is, is lonely enough. I mean, it really is. It, it can be a, a really tough gig. But 
finding myself like outside a hospital with all of this going on, so there's hardly anybody around, you know, it it just feels like you're walking into, it's like walking into a ghost town. You know, you're like, it's so, it's so quiet. You've got your little bag. I've never had an operation before. Not one, so, not tonsils or adenoids, nothing. <laughs> no. Gosh. So it, it, was a, it was a really, really big deal. And yeah, I did feel, I, I felt desperately alone. Um, Were you scared? Which was really hard. Scared? Um, no, I think I, ju- I tend to have a bit of, you know, it's that kind of, you know, if, the, if my doctor says this is right for me, this is what I need to do. Okay. Um, and having not had an operation before, um, I, 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 and the other, the other thing is, I'm, I'm going to say, which I kind of alluded to at the start of our conversation, when you have cancer, COVID is not a worry in the same way it maybe is for other people. I already have something life-threatening. Yeah. I need to deal with that. I can't, yeah, I, I can worry about potential. Obviously, I don't want to catch COVID because my immune system is suppressed and I might not fight it as well. But I'm actually already dealing with something that's really, really difficult that often means I'm scared, that often means I have to isolate that. You know, it means I'm taking all these hygiene precautions anyway. So your so mindset COVID. is completely different. You're prepared for something like this in a way that people yeah. like, that aren't yeah. cancer patients yeah. can't be. The shock is probably yeah. immense for people that have never had to consider an existential threat before. But you're doing that all the time. So are cancer patients. Uh-huh. All the time. Yeah. yeah. So there yeah, you it's, are. It's always there. So there you are. And... um. I'm trying to think myself into your position. It must have been absolutely surreal as well. And as you say, maybe not scary, but very weird. So you get prepped for operation, but then nobody's going to be wheeling you down to the operation, are they? Because precautions have to be taken. They told me that, you know, when I came in, bring a dressing gown and slippers, because you probably will, you will have to walk from the ward to the operating theatre. They said there'll be no... No, and they won't wheel you down on the bed and do your sedation and knock you out before they take you in. Um, and that was quite, that was quite hard. So the operating staff have all got full PPE equipment on, or what? I don't know. Maybe that's what they normally wear to do operations. But they did have the masks on and uh, all the the visors and everything like that. And it's such a sterile environment. Um, that you're into and you know I, I kind of stood there waiting for them to say right if you just want to jump up on the bed and they're kind of like you know well we'll lie down come on let's crack on. There, there's no hanging about there was no no chats no, no chit chat nothing no kind of are are you okay well th- there is a little bit they're, they're putting you at ease but they, they are moving at pace they are they are moving at pace so you're looking at so, uh, the table that you're going to get onto and that surprised you as well didn't it the dimensions yeah i thought well, i'm gonna i'm gonna fall off that's tiny <laughs> <laughs> but i suppose it just allows them but i mean you're, you're hardly i'm hardly even comfortable on it and uh you know the cannula's in and she said you're probably going to feel like you've had a couple of gin and tonics at this point and and that's it until you come round again so, so you come round again and it's it's done and Yes. What was that like? I mean, did they? Did oh. you obviously couldn't walk yourself back? Somebody got you back to a recovery ward, did they? Yeah, they must have. They must have got me off that journey, that yeah. Thing that table and into a bed, and and I, I don't. They did say that they they took you to a recovery area where they bring you out. I don't have any memory of that at all. I just remember being back on the ward, um, and I think I described it as probably feeling like I'd been hit by a train, and there's 
oh, honestly, it was just, it was awful. I felt terrible. I really hadn't expected it to to feel the way that it did. I was so, so tired, so fatigued. Um, you know, the first time you leave your bed, the nurses come and help you. And I really didn't know if I could actually get up on my feet on my own. And um, the nurse went off for help. And when she came back, I said to her, no, I said, look, I said, I'm going to do this. I said, there's nothing wrong with my legs. But I think it's the whole trauma and the shock. You don't know what's going to hurt. So you're just very, very cautious. And it and it does hurt. It hurts a lot. Um, and I think side effects of the anaesthetic, side effects of the pain colours, um, they make you feel quite sick. And oh, the whole, yeah, I kind of had thought I would come round and feel tired, but I'd sleep it off and then sort of, they told me it was just a one night thing. You could go home next day. And the following day, they were trying to get us all up to get showered and ready. And I was just like, oh, you're, I don't have no laugh. I can't even can't I can't move. comprehend how going to possibly but do wait that. Wait a minute. I mean, I want to ask you about the others because that's interesting. There were other people in there. But also, psych- yeah. psychologically, you've just had a breast removed. I mean, never mind yeah. the pain and the discomfort and the discombobulation of the, the anaesthetic and just feeling absolutely wiped. But psychologically, that's a massive deal to to get your head around as well. Yeah. And I think I, th- I think for me, being on the journey as a secondary patient and, you know, having a mistake it did kind of hit me for a while. I thought, you know, out of all this treatment, this feels like the most invasive. Um, but actually, um, my surgeon recommended that we go for the mastectomy with an implant. So when I came round for my operation, I had what looked like a breast. Um, even you know, if I if I if I stand, you know, waist up naked in front of a mirror, you would n- you'd never know. Wow! It, it, incredible what they can do. When my daughter picked me up and I got home and I showed her, she was just like that. Oh my gosh! But that's amazing. Yeah, because your scarring is just it's just underneath. There's nothing to see. So actually, the trauma of that the physical appearance for me was not as I thought it was. I was pleasantly surprised. So you're in there, you're, as you say, you, you, can, barely, you can barely function and they're trying to get you guys oh, ready. And you say there are other people there. So how many people, you're in, in separate rooms, are you in a, an award situation? So, no, up in the, up in the, the breast uh, ward, I was in a ward with another two ladies. So we were all sort of social distancing. One of them... Uh, one of them had the same procedure on the same day as me. And there was a lady came in the following day that had a lumpectomy. Um, she was the first to go. I was the last to go home. And they're, they're very they're very aware of, they ask you quite often, who have you got at home? What support have you got back at home? And um, I think because I was coming home to my 19-year-old daughter, I was really conscious, and so were they, that I came home in a, in a decent place so as not to frighten her or you know that I was in a good place and on my feet and I was feeling quite confident I suppose um in terms of my recovery before I came back so they, they were fabulous and I think after that initial right come on we want you up and showered and out your bed and um you know there's no way you know that I don't want to do that but I really couldn't have the first day and uh, after that it was very much we'll go at your pace you go home and you're ready um, I think my surgeon even said to me, you're safe here. There's no rush. Take your time. Um, you know, it, it was almost the care was more. 
You're listening to Ripples with Claire English. I'm hearing from breast cancer patient Alison Tate, one of relatively few people to have a cancer operation during the COVID-19 pandemic. So let's join her again, because you'd think with the pandemic to deal with, the hospital staff would have been under great stress, perhaps not able to spend much time with patients like Alison. But as you've just heard from her, the opposite was true. Staff right through from doctors, nurses and cleaners were all super attentive, going out of their way to make sure patients they were in contact with were as comfortable and reassured as possible. And don't forget, in another part of the same hospital, in the red zone, it's a whole other ball game. Massive personal protection measures in place to deal with the threat of infection from COVID patients. And as I mentioned at the start of the podcast, in a bizarre twist of fate, Alison had experience of the red zone herself not long after her op. OK, let's stick to the period immediately following the mastectomy. And there was Alison, a cancer patient, coming to terms with what had just happened to her body in very strange circumstances. Speaking to the staff about, you know, because they're very quick to reassure you about what's happening from a COVID perspective. And my surgeon in particular would, you know, talk quite openly about that. And he was saying that, you know, although they prepared at the Western four cases, they were not seeing the numbers that they had expected. So from his point of view, I was being told that, A, we're not busy with COVID. Uh, B, we're totally prepared to be busy with COVID. And secondly, you're safe and there's no hurry for you to leave. So it was all very reassuring. But again, I come back to that thing about, you know, it's the subtle um, cues, uh, things like you can't hear much going, it's too quiet. It's There aren't many oh people buzzing about. Yeah. Explain what that's like to be a patient and be watching all this thinking this isn't this isn't normal. It's, it was more, so not so much my first visit when I went in to have the mastectomy, but when I went in a second time with the infection, because I moved around from different parts of the hospital, um, a porter came to take me from the COVID ward to up to ward 72 it was. And it's quite a distance. And the, the Western's a bit of a sort of rabbit warren uh, to try and get round. And uh, I remember he appeared with a wheelchair and I was like that to them. I said, again, I said, there's nothing wrong with my legs. I can walk. And they were having this debate about whether or not I should walk. And the nurse was saying, well, you know, she's got a temperature, she's got a fever, what are you going to do? She faints on you. So they're talking about me like I'm not there. And I was like that. And you know, what? I said, I'll just do some told us like, I'm sorry, I'll just get in the wheelchair. But um, the whole journey that we walked from where the COVID ward was up towards 72, which would be a good three, four minutes, we didn't pass a single person. Oh, How can you be in a hospital wandering well we weren't we were on our way from one place to the other but how can you do that and not see anybody that just that was really weird it's a saturday night <laughs> that's just not happening is it in any hospital in britain no. that's just unheard of no which brings, it was so quiet it brings me to um an important point here yes you were so lucky i mean awful things have happened to you but you were so lucky weirdly because of where this happened to you in Edinburgh, yeah. low incidence of COVID so far. Let's hope to goodness that continues in all the other cities in, yeah, in Scotland <laughs> also fall. But you were ve- it almost looks like it was a postcode lottery. If you'd been, say, in Glasgow, which has had many more cases, I don't know what the situation would be. Do you reflect on that? Um, no, because I'm probably not aware of it. 
um, the other places that are more. And I think the, the my, my biggest reflection probably has been, particularly around my second visit, is in terms of having an infection, is I, I guess how fatal that could have ended up being for me. Um, and maybe again, that emphasises the seriousness of what was happening. Um, so potentially, again, my second visit, had that happened in Glasgow, that I might have been seen as an emergency patient with a with a bacterial infection rather than somebody, it's not a breast cancer patient with a mistake to me. Yeah, and that's important, but then, that distinction, isn't it? Yeah, and but perhaps, you know, in the first instance, I wouldn't have had my mistake to me had I been in Glasgow. Gosh, there's a lot of what ifs here. Uh, you must still be processing yeah. it in your head, although, well, well, tell me how you are now. What's your status now, Alison? Um, so I'm I'm good. I'm I'm making a I'm making a recovery. I'm still a little bit tired, but um, yeah, I don't like to sit still for long. So that's kind of, I'll I'll be out for a walk later on. I'm sure. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm just preparing for. I'm back. I'll see my surgeon on Friday for a checkup and into radiography on Monday to do a CT scan to prepare for three weeks of radiotherapy treatment. Um, and I think I think as well, you know, you're talking about the urgency of it. So what the radiographer, or the I think she was a clinical oncologist, I want to give her a, a right title because I'm sure she's more than a radiographer, not that there's anything wrong with that, but she, um, she was telling me that radiotherapy, they like to give you that within 12 weeks of an operation because when the operation happens, it can sort of stir things up a little bit and they want to catch any sort of rogue cells that may have been left behind. So as soon as you get on the bandwagon, I guess, with your surgery, everything else has to follow quite quickly for it to be as effective as possible. So again, I'm guessing at the Western, for them to take that one step of doing the mastectomy, they have to be confident they can follow it through with everything else that might come at the back of it. It's a process um, and it has to follow in a certain set time to be beneficial. Yeah, to be to have as much benefit as possible. And and, you know, of course, at that point, we didn't know about this 12 centimetres of disease that they found when they did the pathology following my mastectomy. And, you know, so the seriousness of the situation does all come to light. But had I never had that mastectomy in the first place, wow. we would never have known that. It, you know, the, it's more the knock-on effect of had it not happened at all. That could it could have been really quite awful for me. So just let's reel back and reflect on that as well. The twelve centimeters that they found. Yeah. So it's just yeah. it's that's uh, huge. Can you know that seems yeah. very big to me. I I am no scientist. I'm no doctor, but that that seems a substantial length to be talking about. Yeah. How do you it's feel almost, about that? It's almost the width of your breast, and I think from the the whole process that I've been through that was the bit that kicked me in the guts the hardest was when I heard how much disease was there. And, you know, I kind of had to go away and reflect on it. And I phoned the next day just to say, look, I've got some questions about my pathology. Can somebody help me with those? And um, again, everybody everybody at the Western is really good. So, you know, at the moment I've, I've got a, a breast consultant who's the surgeon. I've got an oncologist. Um, I have a clinical oncologist who looks after, that's a lot of well-paid people who are looking after me. And, you know, the sense of care that you get from them is massive. It, it, it's amazing. You know, everybody is happy to take time, answer your questions, make sure you're clear and that you understand. And uh, my understanding of what this 12 centimetres of disease was, is it wasn't a solid tumour. 
Um, much of what was there was what they call calcification or precancerous, um, but just the amount of it. And there were some um, elements of that that were, it was the word that you use, invasive. So the, there were some nodules within that that measured up to, say, 20 millimetres that were invasive. Um, so, and that kind of proved to us that doing the mastectomy was absolutely the right thing to do. But that's great. That's good for you psychologically to know it's the right really thing happened to you. And you're a lucky woman. Weirdly, yes. in a way, you wonder if COVID yes. hadn't come along, it might have been a slightly, well, a dramatically different picture for you. Yes, I could have waited longer to be seen at breast clinic. I could have waited longer for my mastectomy. Um, the hospital could have been busier around surgery. Um, yeah, that initial operation might not have um might you know it might have just taken longer to happen but for me i've almost benefited from the quietness right now and, and the, the 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 lack of referrals that are coming through and the time that the consultants the oncologists have to talk to you and treat you yep, as absolutely. a person not just a case number and you don't get that normally because guess what the system's completely swamped so in a way yep. this is an incredibly privileged position that's come out of great adversity fair enough I would say so. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, anybody I've been, I went to see my oncologist, I saw him face to face to again to talk about the pathology results. He spent a good maybe 40 minutes with me that day uh, in clinic. And again, waiting in clinic to see him. Um, there's not as many patients there because a lot of them, you know, they're doing their sort of telephone referrals um, as well, which I'm, I'm not adverse to at all. Um, I just sometimes think, depending on the nature of the information they're sharing with you, it's, it is good to have face-to-face. -face. It's really important. And that's where, for me, who's somebody who's shielding um, and, you know, the risks of going to hospital and of being around other patients or being in that kind of environment, because not everybody wears a mask. It's, it's, it's personal choice as a patient whether you do that, whether you go down to the hospital or not. All the healthcare professionals are wearing one. But you know, you're, you're putting yourself at risk by going there. But it's just like I said to you before, COVID is not the threat for me. Cancer's the threat. So that's my priority. I will take my chances with COVID. Um, I, you know, I'm doing what I can to keep myself safe. I believe I'm doing enough to keep myself safe. My daughter and I very much are self-isolating. Um, but I, I will see my consultant face-to-face -face if I think that's the right thing for me because that's what's important right now. Following on from that, about, you know, what you feel about COVID, we've seen incredible innovation, agility from the health service, from big pharma. We've just talked about telemedicine there. You know, methods that weren't being employed before to help to reach patients in a more quick and efficient way because of necessity. Uh, and an, I suppose a willingness to change the mindset about how things are done. How much of that would you have liked to have seen deploy that energy and creativity and innovation to your existing disease, cancer, and other life-limiting oh, illnesses? It, it feels like it feels like cancer has just become like yesterday's news, and nobody's interested anymore. Like they feel that they've got. It's it's obviously very difficult for them to find cure, cures and good treatments, and that that takes a long time. Um, but it feels like something new and shiny's come along and everybody's jumped on it. I, I, I don't quite know. I don't know if it's for their own purposes of everybody wants to be the one that finds the vaccine. I, I, I don't understand. But um, 
I very, very much feel neglected by the fact that that has been allowed to happen. And not, yeah, it's, it's awful that that has been allowed to happen, that they've taken funding, research, whatnot, away from cancer to do that. But the other thing that's a bit of a kick in the teeth is that the speed at which they've been able to do it for COVID. And I know for a fact it takes 14 years for a drug to be developed and to, you know, get down to a point where it's on the shelf for the patient to access. 14 years. 14 years. And you've got, you know, people around COVID jumping up and down because there's not a vaccine yet. Have you any idea? Alison Tate, now thankfully in much better health, but you can hear the anger and the frustration in her voice. COVID was, in her words, uh, a shiny new thing, getting a lot of attention, lots of innovation. And that was great. But here's the point. Why not share some of that energy and fresh thinking around? Has cancer become almost too familiar to us? Too much like background music to warrant the same imperative action? Incidentally, I see the Macmillan charity has called cancer the forgotten sea of this pandemic. That has resonance, hasn't it? Can we say that despite having to have an urgent mastectomy, Alison is still a lucky woman? Well, yes, she is. But how much of that luck is down to where she lives? This is something I'll be addressing with Professor Mike Griffin, President of the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh, next time on Ripples. Huge thanks to Alison Tate for her story. And uh, she's also posted a great little film on my Facebook Ripples page. Check that out and her extended interview. You've been listening to Ripples with Claire English. Please keep doing that. Pass it on to anyone you think might be interested. You can hear this on the podcast platform of your choice. You subscribe for free listening. Get in touch via my Facebook page or check out the voice message option on your browser or app where you listen to Ripples. Click on a link in the show notes. That should take you to the Anchor app page. Leave a short message. You might have to log on or sign up to contribute, but it's free, no strings, just a way of reaching me. It also means I could use your comments in future editions. And finally, finally, a specific shout out to anyone wanting to send a short film to me. Under two minutes on your smartphone with your health status and how COVID has affected you. I'm grateful if you can record these films and if you feel like sending them to me. You are not statistics. You're not case numbers. You're individuals with your own stories. Till we meet next time, stay safe and thanks for listening.